You're listening to the Sunday podcast from Life Point Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. We hope you are encouraged by today's message. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. All right, do we have the other microphone handy? Where are my pastors at? Excellent. So we're going to be reading some scripture this morning. We are back in this series, The Covering of Covenant. Last week, Pastor Chad talked about communion in covenant and the purpose of communion. Uh, about a year and a half ago here at LifePoint, we started something called Covenant Relationship. And really, we didn't call it membership because membership is for Costco and the country club. Covenant or relationship is what we see throughout Scripture. It's related to a family. It's related to a marriage. There's a head-body relationship involved. And so we knew that we needed accountability as pastors and elders to uh, those who attended here. And with more than a 1,000 people, including kids, attending here, and now an online presence, it's over 300, how are we going to match and meet those people? And so we said, let's do a covenant relationship where you see some videos, you agree with who we are and where we align with certain issues in scripture, and then you say, yeah, we'll come under the leadership there, and we as pastors and elders say, we will serve you, we will check in on you, that we want to be accountable to each other, right? If COVID showed the church anything, it's how many missing gaps there were in the church being accountable to the people and the people accountable to the leadership at church. So this started a year and a half ago, and now we are back in a place of just teaching and walking through it in a little bit different way than we did before. And so this morning, we're looking at overseers and deacons, overseers and deacons. If you want to open a Bible up to 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy 3, we'll be looking at that. But I also need some readers. So I've got sheets of paper with the verses in 16-point font. That's big font, in case you're wondering. Um, so who, and it's all NIV. So I've got five different volunteers I need to read the scripture. So you don't have to listen to me read it. There's one right here. There's two, three, four, five. One right here. Wow, first service was five, four men, one woman. This service is four women, one man. Interesting. Very fascinating. Um, so, so what's it mean to be an overseer and deacon? I'm glad you asked. Timothy, in the book of Timothy, in the book of Titus, we get some directions uh, on what overseers and deacons are to be. But in order to understand part of their job, it's oversight, it's guiding, it's teaching, it's preaching, it's evangelism, it's care for the flock. And a big part of that, that is throughout all of the New Testament scriptures, is to be cautious and be wary of false teachers. So what's a false teacher? Is he, is he asking me or is he just gonna say it? I love Jim Gaffigan in case you can't tell, the inside voice. False things. Yeah, so the question then, exactly, they're teaching false things. So then what's false? How do we know what's false? Right? Especially when we can find Christian men and women with doctorates, right? Doctorates who can say one thing and have it completely contradict another Christian man or woman with doctorates on the same exact scripture. How do we know what's true or false? That young lady seems to think she knows. Yes. Yell it out.
Do they draw you to themselves or to Christ? That's excellent. Absolutely. I want to show you here, Jesus, Peter, and Paul. Sounds like a band. Jesus, Peter, and Paul each talk about false teaching. So which of my volunteers wants to read Matthew 7, 15 through 20? Matthew 7, 15 through 20, it's the first one. This is Jesus saying false teachers will come from outside the community of believers. And, okay, right here, all right? My lovely assistant, Banna Schamberg, will hand you the mic. Just hold it up close to your mouth. Is it on? We've been having issues with mics. You got it? Okay. Matthew 7, 15, 20. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Excellent. Thank you for that. So Jesus says the fruit. You will know them by their fruit. Now, now here's the thing that I want you to think about. By the way, this isn't working because the batteries are dead. So if somebody wants to bring me some battery, of course. Gosh, it's so wonderful. Um, Eve, it says in the garden, looked at the fruit that the snake said to eat, and she saw that it was desirable to eat, and yet it wasn't good fruit. So what do we do when the fruit that is before us, or that is being presented by a false teacher, is in fact bad? How do we know it's bad then, right? And here I am just asking rhetorically just to get you to think. Because it's going to be answered here in uh, Peter's letter and in Paul's letters. But I just want you to know, bad fruit doesn't always look like that f- those strawberries, at least in our fridge, that get pushed to the back of the fridge. And then every time my kids put the new food in, they don't rotate it. And so they just keep putting the new strawberries in front. And then one day we say, what's that smell? And we play a game and we open up the fridge and they've turned into a giant moldy thing that is nobody else. This is my fridge about every month. Um, so not all bad fruit looks like that. A lot of bad fruit looks really tempting looks delicious, looks perfectly good. So how do we know that it's not good fruit? How do we know that it's the bad fruit that Jesus is talking about? Peter tells us false teachers often can arise from it within the community of believers, pastors, friends, deacons, elders, right? Uh, others in the church. And so 2 Peter 2, verses 1 and 2. Who wants to read that? Did I just pull that off? Yeah, there we go. Who wants to read that? 2 Peter 2, 1 and 2. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Denying, can we turn this one back on? Check, check, awesome, I'll give you that one back, thank you. Uh, Bringing destructive heresies. So what are destructive heresies, right? This is a question that as believers we have to come to an answer to, not just stay ignorant about. But what's a destructive heresy? Peter says not only do they bring destructive heresies, they deny the sovereign Lord who bought them. 
with his blood. They deny that he was sovereign. They deny that Jesus was, in fact, fully God and fully man because it's a mystery, because it's something outside of human understanding, how he could be fully God and fully man. They denied it, and they said, well, no, he was a man whom God's spirit came upon. Or, yeah, he was God until he took sin upon himself. God cannot have sin, so that part of God departed, and it was just the man who died in our place. And they begin to change up all of these teachings of Jesus, of what Jesus said he was, into things that were more palpable to understand, easier to preach right? This is how you identify it within the church. Whenever a teacher within the church begins to preach a Christ other than the one you read about in the Gospels, even though you can't understand how a virgin birth happens, even though you don't fully understand when he says, this is my body and my blood, you must eat my body and drink my blood, and you're like, what? Even when you don't fully understand how somebody could raise somebody else from the dead and then, days later, raise themselves from the dead. It is what it is. It is the gospel, right? And so any teacher who begins to make it easier to understand by twisting it, by changing it into something that it is not, Peter says, beware, because they have brought destructive heresies in and swift destruction upon themselves. So Paul, in his letters, in just about every single letter, warns against false teachers. Who's got Galatians 1, 6 through 9? Right over here. Galatians 1, 6 through 9. Paul says, if you leave false teachers unchecked, the results are disastrous. And here's what he says to the church. Galatians 1, 6 through 9. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Well done. Read with the full vim and vigor of Paul. Let them be under God's curse. If we preach or an angel, a spirit preaches a gospel different than what you have heard and what you have read, may they be under the curse of God Almighty. You see, Paul says there is penalty for coming in and changing up the gospel, for changing up the person of Christ and who he says he was. He says, it's supposed to be something you wrestle with. It's supposed to be something that shatters your perceptions of what is real because it is greater than you. God is not something that you can easily understand and and know that 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 he is a being who has the power to speak things into existence, material things into existence. And he is somebody who seeks relationship lifelong with us as we get to know him. 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 4. 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 4, right up here. Brian? This one's good. Not that they aren't all good, but... Good morning. I like 
I particularly like this one. Second Corinthians 11, 1 through 4. Yeah, lift the mic up to the mouth. Thank you, sorry. Yes, sir. Second Corinthians 11, 1 through 4. I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promise you to be one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a, Je preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. All right, so Paul is concerned for the church in Corinth. He says, there are men coming into the church and they are preaching a different Jesus. One maybe like Jesus and Satan are brothers. Jesus is a created being of God. He's the first created being of God. You hear me? These are real things that are being preached, what I just said. That he is not, in fact, God himself. He is the first created being of God. That's why it says he's the first son. Paul says, if people come in and preach that, I was promised to bring my Savior, this pure, spotless bride, as he is the bridegroom, but I fear that you are beginning to preach a different Jesus. In fact, I fear you're beginning to act and listen to a different spirit than the Holy Spirit. You see, this is easy to do because so often the devil will play on our own emotions and our own self-doubt and our own self-loathing and begin to say, well, this must be how God feels about me, right? I was just giving this advice to my son as he's talking with friends at school and I said, uh, as, they're, as they're believing things about themselves which aren't true, and I said, you know, there's a difference. The Holy Spirit will never say things that your friends are believing about themselves. They're believing a false spirit, that they are unworthy, that they are not lovable, that there's nothing in life worth living for, that God doesn't love them. These things that they're speaking out loud are lies from a, the father of lies who wants to see them destroy themselves. Paul says, learn to see and recognize when a false spirit is present. Now, we, when we hear those words right now, maybe as adults, you're like, well, obviously those are false spirits. But we suffer with it too, don't we, adults? Ours is often with our jobs in comparison to those we grew up with. With other people who has kids maybe, and you don't have kids yet, and you've been wanting kids. Why don't we have kids? Am I not worthy to be a father? I remember I had those thoughts after years and years of trying. You see, we begin to listen to a spirit, and then we fall, we make a mistake, we sin, we fall into a pattern of sin, and then we see to God is drawing us back, and this lie says, you are unworthy to come back to him. Or God's now drawing us into ministry, we've, been, we've come back to him, and God's calling us to a ministry, but then the voice comes in, and the spirit says, who do you think you are to go and minister in that area? You're no man or woman of God. Friends... If you ever hear the voice and the spirit that brings condemnation upon you, that says you are unworthy, that says you have no value, that says you're unlovable, that says you're despicable, in no way at any point, at any time, is that ever the Holy Spirit? Amen. Ever. Amen. Even when you are in defiance of him, 
Even when you curse his name and actively sin against him, his Holy Spirit will come to you like the heart of a broken father and he will weep over you. You will feel his immense love burn over you in the midst of your rebellion, not condemnation. You see, when you felt that, who's felt that? Anybody in here ever felt that? It draws you to repentance, doesn't it? The condemning voice just draws a further wedge between you and God. That's what a false spirit looks like. Paul says, beware of this. If they come in this spirit, if a pastor or a teacher begins to bring condemnation, hellfire and brimstone, and you do not sense the love of Christ, you do not sense, just as Jesus, as he sat with the Samaritan woman at the well, he knew she was in sin. But do you know that just the act of sitting with her in a culture where a Jewish rabbi did not even, let alone talk to, would have walked uh, completely around to not be near a Jewish uh, a Samaritan woman? He sat and first showed her how much he loved her by beginning to speak with her. He called out her sin, right? You're right, you're not married. In fact, you've been married five times, seven, five times, and the man you're living with isn't your husband. And then we take the woman caught in adultery who's brought before him in complete shame and embarrassment by all of these religious mighty men in the city. After Jesus humiliates the men who brought her before him, he says, go, I do not judge you. I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. He lets her know, I love you. You have value. You have worth. He doesn't condone what she was doing. He says, now go and sin no more. That is the Spirit of God, my friends. In a world, in an America, in a time when there are so many voices through so many avenues, the Spirit of God is not one that is easy to get mixed up in the rest of the voices. Because the Spirit of God is like no other spirit. In fact, if you're looking, if you're listening, it's quite clear compared to the other voices that are telling you you're worthless. And third, Paul says, if someone comes and preaches a different gospel than the one you accepted. The gospel of Jesus Christ is very simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. God came in the form of a man, born as a baby, through the Virgin Mary, by his Holy Spirit, conceived the child, and he was both fully God and fully man as he grew up as a normal human being. He did not sin. He brought before him disciples who he taught the truth. He fulfilled the prophet's law. He fulfilled the prophets and what would come of the Messiah who would save the mankind. He was betrayed. He was crucified, dead, buried. Whoa. And rose again. That's the gospel. We've been having problems with that all morning. That is the gospel, right? And that you can come to him because of the work that he has done and his righteousness is given to you because of the work of the cross. You say, Lord, I submit my life to you. I repent of my sin. I turn from them just as you told the woman, go and sin no more. Would you be Lord of my life? That's the gospel. 
So anybody who comes in and says, yes, all of that is wonderful and it's good, but you must also do these works if you wish to enter heaven. You must also accomplish these tasks in order to enter the true heaven. That if you fall away, you have lost this thing that you did not receive. So don't fall away. Don't mess up. You see, there's all sorts of different gospels that are cleverly said to sound like the gospel of Christ. But if it's not as simple as something that I just said here, then it's not the gospel of Christ. Now we can add tons of qualifiers to that, right? And this, and this, and this. But the real gospel is simple. Call upon the name of Jesus. Believe that he is Lord. Submit your life, repent of your sin, and turn to him. And he will make your path straight. First Timothy 6, 3 through 4, as Paul is counseling, who's the last one I had to read? Right here, Debbie. As Paul is counseling his young disciple Timothy, who is now the pastor, the elder, the overseer at the church in Ephesus, he sends this letter to him, and this is what he says regarding false teachers. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions. Awesome, thank you. So this is the end of Paul's letter to Timothy. And he says, based off everything that I've written here, I'm telling you, Timothy, this is sound taught teaching, sound doctrine. If people come in and they want to argue about titles, they want to argue about genealogies, they want to argue about the law, they want to bring up these things, they want to argue about your age. Remember, Timothy was young to be an elder, and overseer. Then I'm telling you, Timothy, it is worthless. Cast them away. It will only bring strife, envy, and evil suspicions to the congregation. This is an unhealthy thing. And so Paul gives instruction to, to Timothy as an overseer that what the Holy Spirit has laid on your heart and what I have shown you here in, in the scriptures, follow these things no matter what people come up and say. I called my, my pastor, who's my mentor, the pastor who, who I, I was uh, served under for years in central Phoenix a couple weeks ago and just explained some things that were going on in church and ministry and he said, you know, this is what I've found. You know, he's been pastoring for over 50 years. He said, when God puts you in charge of a congregation, it's sort of like being at the helm of a ship. And, and you've got your hands on the, what is that thing? It's on the steering wheel, whatever it is. You've got your hands on the wheel. And you're steering it where the Holy Spirit is leading you and the elders who God has placed you with. And then what happens is in ministry, people will come up and good meaning people, godly men and women, and they will say, hey, I love what your ministry is doing, but it should also come over here. You should also do this. You should also do that. We should also teach this. We should also allow this. We shouldn't do this. And they just, they just want to pull the ship a little bit. And he said, one of the things that your job is, is to keep it on the path that the Holy Spirit has shown you and the elders of your church. And this is an interesting concept for somebody who is super young, as such as myself. And uh, a leader, a teacher, is to say, Lord, what if I'm messing up? Could you imagine if Timothy ever had these thoughts? 
Maybe some of these people who know the Bible better than me and, and who have been part of the Jewish faith longer than me and have been sat and taught longer, what if I'm messing up? And Paul says, Timothy, I appeal to the Holy Spirit through you. Listen to what I have written down and trust God's Spirit. This is important because as offices, three offices in the church that I'm going to close with here, one of them is elder overseer, and then we have deacons in 1 Timothy, and then we have the congregation, the servants, those who are here, part of the body. First and foremost, elders are shepherds. They're the overseers of the church. I'm going to use the word elder going forward. Presbyteros is the Greek word that Paul uses here, right? All kinds of people shepherd, but there needs to be official shepherd. And so we see multiple times throughout Scripture that Paul places elders over the churches that he establishes, and then he leaves to plant more churches. And so what we have here in Timothy chapter 3 is what an elder is. So verses 1 through 7 is what an elder should be, our qualifications essentially for an elder. And I'm gonna go through here and sort of break them down. Uh, number one, they must be above reproach. This doesn't mean that they are without fault, but it means that whatever faults they have must not be overwhelming, cannot be great. They must have their life in a place where they have repented of sin, been uh, redeemed of the sin and moved past it, and it is no longer a stronghold on their life. Nobody is perfect. Nobody has a life in which they can look back and say, I have zero things I've done wrong. But it must be somebody who is in good standing and, as Paul says, above reproach. They need to be models that other men in the church can follow. Husband of one wife, as we read the scriptures here, it would appear that elders are male, that they is set aside for male to be elders in the church. Now, this has lots of things, and you can debate it, and you can go through all sorts of stuff, but this is how the elders here at LifePoint interpret this scripture, that the elders, the overseers are to be male based off of what we see here in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus as well. They cannot be polygamous. This is a big deal since most of the men in that time had multiple wives and also coming from pagan backgrounds into Christianity would have had multiple wives. So Paul says, Timothy, they need to be monogamous, a man of one wife, self-controlled, sensible. They can't, have, they can't make decisions impulsively. They have to be respectable, hospitable, able to teach. You see, that's a quality of an elder. An elder needs to be able to teach. Now, I point that out because I'm going to show you something here when we get to deacons. Not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome. They have to be forgiving. If, they have a, if it's a man who just seems like he's always got a chip on his shoulder, Paul says, no, that guy's not going to be a good elder. They cannot be greedy. Uh, they have to have skills in their own family that they manage their family well. They can't be a new believer for fear that pride of the position would take over and cause them to fall, and a good reputation in the community and in their workplace. So it's, it's a demanding job to be an elder, isn't it? Like, does anybody hear that list and just be like, oh, well, I meet all of those. Fantastic. That sounds like a wonderful thing to do. It, it's scary. It's a scary position to take on because the responsibility and the call of an elder is one to be like, that's a heavy weight. 
But here's the thing, and here's what I've seen over the last nine years of being one of the elders here at LifePoint, is I don't carry the weight under my own knowledge, my own background, my own education, my own understanding. I carry it under the grace of God. And the Lord gives grace to carry the weight He's asked you to carry. And the elders that are on the board now, if you were to ask them that same thing, did you feel worthy, they would all say, I didn't feel worthy. But if you were to ask them, how has it been going, they would say it's difficult, but the Lord gives grace where it is needed. So that is the oversight of LifePoint Church. We have an elder board. It is men selected from the congregation. We don't like farm out for them and get the best of the best around the country to come in. Uh, We take men who have been raised up, who we identify, who you nominate. We actually have an elder nomination coming up. There are qualifications inside of this as well as they've got to have attended here at the church for a minimum of three years. And then those qualifications are given to the board. We meet with them, have lunch with them, dinner with them, and then the board votes on who to bring on, and then we introduce them to you for a period of weeks. So if anybody has an issue with that person, they can contend with them, and then they are brought on as an elder for a period of three years, at which point they can then choose to stay on for another three years or or step down and have their service time end, and we bring somebody else on. Why do I say all this? Because when we talk about covenant, when we talk about submitting our lives to one another, I want you to understand the oversight and the structure of LifePoint. I want you to know where we stand, how we see, read, and interpret the Scriptures so you can make an educated decision if this is the place that you want to be. Second, we see in verses 8 through 13 are deacons and deaconesses, men and women, servants. The word is diakinesos, diakinos, diakinesos. Close enough. It's Greek to me. It's deacons. All kinds of people serve, but in the church we still need official servants, people who have a title and responsible. We all know that if all of a sudden I were to say, all right, you're all a community, you have to live here for the rest of your life. If nobody's in charge, what do we call that? Chaos, horrifying, yeah, right? Everybody, nobody's in charge, so everybody's in charge. So deacons have the greatest flexibility in their ministry, and we see it constantly throughout Paul's letters. He uses this word to describe various men and women. And so in our church, deacons serve a multiple various areas. We've got deacons over the men's ministry. We call them pastors, right? And so here's the thing that sometimes will often be a problem in the church is just the title pastor. What is a pastor? What is a deacon? What is an elder? Well, in the qualifications here for church governance, the word pastor doesn't show up. In fact, the word pastor is really only used once in the Bible um, when it talks about the gifts that are given to be preachers, uh, shepherds, which is pastoring. But here it's elders and deacons. These are the two groups that Paul gives definitively as offices in the church. Outside of these, other things are given as gifts of God upon people, but these are the two that we can see are given as offices in the church. And so we have an elder board, of which I'm a part of, along with six other men. Pastor Tim's on the elder board as well. And then the rest of the men are men that have been chosen out of the congregation. And then we have deacons, or what we would also call pastors. These are men and women of godly character, but not necessarily teachers. They are dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to wine or drink, not greedy, keeping hold of the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. We don't have time for that. I've ran out of time to explain that one. They have been tested. They are the husband of one wife. Now, it then says, 
and now according to women, right? In the Bible, it says now for the women. Now it has been referred to by those who don't believe that women should be in positions of leadership in the church, that this is now talking about the deacon's wife. Have you ever heard that? That it's not talking about women as deacons, but it's talking about a deacon's wife. The problem I have with that interpretation, and many others have, is why doesn't it give the same qualification for an elder's wife? If an elder is above a deacon, wouldn't it make sense that the elder's wife should also hold these same things if that's what's going on? Also, if a deacon is not to be a woman, if a woman is not to hold this position of leadership, then why is it we see Paul in Romans 16, 1, when talking about Phoebe, as he sends her with his letter that he has just written, written, he calls her a diakonesis or a deacon. He says to receive her in the same way that you would receive me, Paul, as she comes and delivers the letter, and most historians believe she probably would have read it and explained it to them as well. She was also a benefactor to Paul, which means she was wealthy. We also, when you read 1 Corinthians, open it up, verse 11, it says, I have received word from the household of Phoebe. Phoebe was a wealthy woman of the time. She was smart, she was giving, and as part of this, she was entrusted to carry the letter back to the city of Rome and most likely explain it. Okay, so with that and with seeing Priscilla alongside Aquila teach Apollos when he was in error about the Holy Spirit, along with seeing Nymphomane mentioned in Colossians 4.15 as the head of the household in which there is a church group meeting, we can attain, ascertain that the word deacon is used for both men and women alike. And then there is even a special section under deacon dedicated solely to women in which it says the quality must be one worthy of respect, not gossiping or putting down others, self-controlled and trustworthy. And so here at LifePoint, we have women pastors and we have men pastors, but we have an overseer board of men as we read the scriptures. My job on that elder board is to preach and to teach. And so I have a title, senior pastor, that we understand culturally to mean over the pastors, over the deacons, over the volunteers, but on the board, I'm just one vote. I don't get like four votes on the board. I'm just one vote in seven because it's the board that votes for the direction of theology and teaching and money and the direction of the church, not me. Does that make sense? So that's how the oversight of this church plays out. That's how we see uh, men and women and how we see their roles as teachers or what we might say as pastors. And so last part is this, and I'll invite the band up. The congregation is the part of the church that does the work of the ministry. That's you. You actually do the work of the ministry. Ephesians 4.12, you do the work of the ministry. And it says in Hebrews 13.17, obey your leaders and submit to them. Do not make their jobs more difficult, it says. And here's the point, mutual submission to each other. We submit our lives to you. We submit our lives and our time and what we do to you when you're in need. And our goal is that you would submit back to the leadership here to be under the leadership here. And that's how the Lord designed the church to work. And in that, we would have unity. Not unity in all things, but unity in the main things. Right? Now, we know that inside of this, there are going to be things that we just don't agree on. Things that we're just like, no, absolutely not. That's not how it should be. Yes, we believe in Jesus. Yes, we believe in everything the Apostles' Creed talks about. And we're all in unity on that. But I just can't be in a church that does this, plays Hillsong worship. 
I can't be in a church that has female pastors. I can't be in a church where they speak in tongues, not out loud, but in private. I just don't want that. Now, here's the deal. That's fine. In fact, in, God, in Scripture, we have room for that, don't we? Paul and Barnabas, they go separate ways. They annoyed each other. There is something, we don't know what it was, but there was a dispute that caused them to go separate ways so they could be in peace with one another. But you know what you don't see in the rest of Paul's letters? Him being like, oh, don't go to Barnabas' church. He's an idiot. I hate the way he does church. He's stupid. It's not godly. He never puts him down. He never causes division. He says, so that there may be peace, we went separate ways. And the same goes for God's church here in America. If you're here and there is something that after speaking with the elders, the pastors of the church, after a time of prayer and fasting, you say, this is something in my heart I just don't have peace with, then by all means, come and meet and allow us to part ways in a mutually beneficial way that edifies the Lord. Because if you'll remember a few weeks ago, Jesus said, that the church would be the proof of God's power before the heavenly authorities, rulers, and principalities. That when the world sees this many different people with this many different backgrounds and different opinions even about their own religion coming together unified, forgiving one another, humbling, giving of their money, giving of their time, serving their neighbor, there is nothing else like it in the world and to this day there's nothing else like it in the world. That is the very glory of God and the work of his Holy Spirit in our lives. Amen. If you have questions about any of this, if you have concerns about any of this, we invite you to come talk with our pastors, our elders. That's our whole purpose of covenant, that we would be open and transparent with who we are, what we believe, how we interpret scripture, and how we seek unity here at LifePoint. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you now in communion, I pray we would examine our own hearts, each one of us. Lord, that we would be honest before you. That where repentance is needed, we would give it. Where forgiveness is required, we would not withhold it. Father God, as we come to remember the body and the blood of your son, Jesus, would you uphold us in this moment? your mighty hand. On the night that Jesus would be betrayed, he took bread and broke it amongst his disciples. And in a physical act of something spiritual that was to come, he took it and he said, this is my body. I give it to you. It is because of his body we have access to come before the almighty God. And this says he gave thanks. Father, we give thanks for this now. In the name of your son, Jesus, and by the sacrifice of the cross and the power of the resurrection, Lord, we receive it unto ourselves until he is to return again. In Jesus' name, amen. In a similar manner, it says he took the cup and he told his disciples, this is my blood be the salvation of many and the mark of a new covenant between man and God. And he blessed it. 
Father, forgive my ignorance. As I come before you, Lord, to remember the blood of Jesus, that I am forgiven not by anything I have done, but by his blood spilt upon that cross. I love you, Lord, in Jesus' name.